Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. This episode is part one of our double feature with Isabella Allende, who first joined us at Benaroya Hall in March 1989 for Seattle Arts and Lectures inaugural season. At the time of Isabel's first visit, she had authored her astonishing debut, The House of the Spirits, and also of Love and Shadows and Eva Luna. In her talk, she describes surrendering to the power of writing and its potential to unify what she calls the extended family of the world. Isabel is introduced by Seattle Arts and Lectures visionary founder, Sherry Prouda. Here's an evening filled with candor and laughter with Isabel Allende. This evening with Isabel Allende is underwritten by Elliott Bay Book Company, a gem of a bookstore and one of the reasons that Seattle is a great place to live. In addition to Elliott Bay's um, ever-growing bookstore, Rick Simonson presents an incredible schedule of um, readings. A word of warning, the readings are addictive and they happen often. Um, I thank Walter Carr and Rick for their support and their assistance. In 1973, the military coup in Chile changed everything for Isabel Allende. She has said, and I quote, I felt as many Chileans did that my life had been cut into pieces and I had to start over again. Starting over meant a new life in Venezuela and a new career as a novelist. Writing to keep the memories alive, she has recently said, the books, the books. Writing is like a catharsis. It's a way of getting inside the past, inside your own memories. And when you write about other people, you write about yourself. While writing the books, I learned a lot about myself, and the world became more tolerable. Living with myself was more tolerable, too. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you the internationally acclaimed author of The House of the Spirits, of Love and Shadows, and Ava Luna, Ms. Isabel Allende. Good evening, and thank you. This is the first time I talk in a church. I, I hope that the Holy Spirit will illuminate me and give you patience for the next 45 minutes. Tonight, I would like to talk about the meaning of writing, a theme that has been in my mind and in my heart for a short while, let's say 20 or 30 years. The opportunity to prepare this conversation with you has been very important to me. It has forced me to organize my confused emotions and to put in words those concepts that have been in my heart and in my mind for a long time. Ideas that keep me going and that I use automatically, but never until now have had the need to articulate. However, I'm afraid that my long training as a woman and as a mother has repressed in me any capacity for generalization. So please forgive me 
if I try to explain my ideas with particular examples. In England, Salman Rushdie published a sarcastic novel. In Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini ordered his followers to kill him for blasphemy. And now, fanatic Muslims all over the world are sharpening their knives. What is it that the Ayatollah fears so much? What can the book destroy or corrupt? How powerful is the written word? Why was Galileo forced by the Pope to deny his discoveries about the solar system? Why have so many authors been in prison, tortured, and killed throughout the history of civilization? It is hard for us to understand it. We think that we belong to a different culture where these things would never happen. In 1989, in the Western industrialized nations, literature is only an artistic or intellectual achievement. It doesn't even deserve to be censored. However, the freer of the written word is not unknown to us. Only 50 years ago, the Germans woke up one morning with Nazis burning books in the streets. The same thing happened in the most refined and tolerant country of the world, in Italy, not to mention Greece and Spain. And here, in the United States, writers and journalists were persecuted for their ideas during the 50s and part of the 60s. Still, many books are banned from public libraries. So maybe we should give a closer look to this matter. Maybe there is something, something magic in words, after all. I'm not trying to justify Khomeini, please. I think that his fanaticism has thrown uh, Iran back to the dark ages. The Western world has a debt to the Muslim world because while we were stuck in the shadows of the Middle Ages, the Arabs kept burning the torch of knowledge inherited from the Greeks and the Romans. Now the pendulum seems to have gone the other way. No, I'm not defending Khomeini. I'm, under, I'm only wondering about the importance and the power of literature. Catherine McNamara, a writer who has been working for many years with Indians in Alaska, told me that for these people, words are very important. They are very careful about words because they think that words can do good or evil. I found the same belief among primitive tribes in the Amazon. Among the Saname Yanoami, for example, you cannot call a person by his or her name because you would be touching his soul and that can be dangerous. For them, the word is the thought. The word is the intention. The word can be life or death. Words have the power to create and to destroy. This is a terrifying thought for a writer, but it is also a fascinating one. I grew up in the house of my grandparents. I was brought up to be a lady, but it didn't work that way. <laughs> you can imagine how disappointed my mother is. The house was an old, large, and somber place, inhabited by weird people and benevolent spirits that my grandmother summoned with a three-legged table. I belong to a crazy family, which is very fortunate because with such relatives, I don't have to stretch my imagination. They alone fulfill all the prerequisites of magic realism. <laughs> I had an uncle who looked like Rodolfo Valentino. 
No reactions. You don't know who Rodolfo Valentino is. <laughs> oh, God, my age is showing. Well, you know who uh, Carlos Gardel is? Well, that look. Spanish, dark eyes, grease in his black hair. He loved books. He bought them by hundreds and cherished them like holy relics. He always wore a coat, a long black coat, even in summer, with big pockets to hide the books that he stole in public libraries, bookstores, <laughs> and the homes of his friends. His room was a tunnel of books, shelves from floor up to the ceiling, and at the center, a small bed with a lamp. One day during an earthquake, Chile is a land of cataclysms, not only political, but also geological. We heard a terrible noise, as if a train had crashed my uncle's room. We tried to open the door, but it was stuck. The shelves had fallen on the bed, and my uncle was buried under a mountain of books. In despair, we started to remove the books, looking for his cadaver. Finally, we found a foot, and we could drag him out. He was in perfect health and in control of all his faculties, including his sense of humor. That was my first contact with literature, and since then, it has not lost it, its excitement. <laughs> the house of my grandparents was invaded by books. Books were everywhere, like a magnificent flora of printed paper, in the midst of which I wandered with my mind and my senses agitated by indiscriminate readings. No one censored or guided what I read. When I was seven years old, more or less, I took to school a volume called Philosophy of the Boudoir. <laughs> the nuns were very impressed with the word philosophy, and they had never heard of the author, so they didn't suspect that I was a pioneer of pornography. The author, as you know, was the Marquise de Sade. My uncle gave me the love of books. He told me that at night, the characters left the pages and roamed in the house. Warriors, courtesans, princes and criminals strolled from room to room, impregnating the air with adventure. 30 years later, when I became a writer, his idea was confirmed. My house is full of presences escaped from literature. My stepson, Scott, says that, he says that since I came to live with him, he can hear spirits haunting the house. My husband says that they are raccoons on the roof. <laughs> Lawyers are always manipulating the truth. <laughs> I can no longer distinguish reality from fantasy. The limit, the limit is a blurred line. Everyday life is full of fantastic events. And in turn, the atmosphere of books is saturated with reality. Everything is possible. Eva Luna, the main character of my third novel, says that she writes as she would like the world to be, and that she lives her life as a novel. I feel that way too. As a reader, I allow myself to be carried away by the enchantment of a narrative. And as a writer, I surrender myself to the pleasure of telling a story. Convinced that if something is not strictly true at this moment, tomorrow it will be. <laughs> I believe that some writers are only instruments. They interpret the voices that are in the air. Why is it that in the same year, three well-known Latin American authors published novels about dictatorships? 
Gabriel García Marquez, Alejo Carpentier, and Raúl Roa Bastos were simultaneously writing about the same theme. At that moment, half the population of my continent lived under a dictatorship. These writers interpreted the collective terror. When I write, I deal with forces that I cannot control, like my grandmother did when she talked with her ghosts. Strange things happen to me all the time, things that I cannot explain. Later, if you want, I can give you some examples. It is true that I write because for me it's unavoidable. It is a matter of survival. If I don't write, I die. Writing is always a private orgy, the possibility of creating and recreating the world according to my own laws, fulfilling in those pages all my dreams and exercising some of my demons. But that is not the only reason for writing. There must be something else. The idea that there is magic power in the written word can be a very heavy responsibility. So I have been asking myself, why do I write? What is the meaning of writing? And in order to explain the meaning of writing, I have to start by asking myself, what is the meaning of life to me? Ultimately, I am what I write. Therefore, I must define myself as a human being in order to discover why I write. Writing is a very solitary pursuit. In the last few years, I have spent most of my time alone. In the daily exercise of trying to interpret reality, not only its visible dimensions, but mainly its hidden forces, I have learned something about the passions and the ideas that move people. In my writing, I try to understand the world, to make it more tolerable, and if possible, to change it. I'm not modest, as you must have noticed. <laughs> to create stories, I have to observe, to listen, to ask questions. Sometimes people ask me, which of my three books I like the most? I don't know. I have never read them after they were published. I have forgotten all the details and some important parts too. Each story is so demanding that I have to erase from my memory and from my computer all the previous ones. I don't remember the books, but some characters have never left me. They still live in my house, like Clara del Valle, Irena Beltran, Professor Leal, and Barabbas, the big dog in the House of the Spirits. Most of my characters are not invented. I use real people as models, people that I interview or that I have known, or as I said before, that belong to my family. They don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> Very few of my characters are product of my imagination. One of them is Riyad Alabi, the Arab in Eva Luna. I have never known anybody like him. At a certain point, um, when I was in the middle of the book, I had this little girl lost in the streets, hungry, miserable. She really needed a savior. She was trapped in a dead end. And I was wondering how I could have been so stupid to put us both in such a situation, when all of a sudden, Riyad Alavi appeared in my study. He just stepped out of the shadows. He must have been in that corner for a very long time because he knew everything about Eva Luna and in a very casual way took upon himself the responsibility to rescue her. 
Riyad Alabi didn't look like a phantom of my imagination. He was a heavy man with Mediterranean features, dressed in a brown suit. He had his own voice, his own smell, his own way of moving around and expressing all of his emotion with his eyes, which were black and wet like olives. He also had a hair lip, and I said, gosh, why a hair lip? We have to eliminate that. But I couldn't, of course, because a writer is just a writer, not God. Riyad Alabi became one of my favorite friends, and although the book does not belong to me anymore, he remains near. He has a loving and generous nature. He has taught me many things, and during the process of preparing this lecture, I discussed some ideas with him. He would visit me sometimes in dreams, or would appear like a robust ghost in the solitude of my study. For him, the main reason to exist is to help others, because in giving and sharing, he finds joy. I have also talked about this subject with some special people. A couple of weeks ago, I found myself sitting at the table in the house of our best friends. It was meant to be a dinner party, and it became a Chekhov's play. There we were, a group of friends discussing the meaning of writing and the experience of life, or the meaning of life and the experience of writing. Outside, it was raining, and the room was illuminated with candles. Chekhov would have been delighted. <laughs> My poor husband has had to deal with this subject every night for a year, with great damage to our sex life, I must admit. <laughs> for months, I went around asking everybody. Some were not very enlightening, that, like that policeman who pulled me over, and when I asked for his opinion about the meaning of writing, he replied that silly questions would not save me from getting a ticket. <laughs> but others were helpful, like my 11-year-old stepson, who said that we are here to save the planet and know more about everything. So that is what books should be about. He reads comics only, Garfield and Hopes, and, and other comics about uh, uh, Japanese green monsters that crash San Francisco. <laughs> My friend, Tom Farber, said that his mission is to create truth and to give a piece of his truth to others with the tool that he has, language. He believes that he's on earth to celebrate life. My mother thinks that life is an opportunity for the spirit to learn and to grow. And we have to improve ourselves in order to improve all humankind. So writing should be at the service of this cause, or else it's a waste of time. She's the most severe critic of my books, always demanding depth and beauty. Seven years have passed since I published my first novel, and in this time many things have changed for me. I'm constantly confronted, not only by my wonderful mother, but also by other readers. It is not enough to write in trance, overwhelmed by the desire to tell a story. One has to be responsible for each word, each idea. The published word cannot be erased. Maybe that is one of the main reasons to write. Write to prevent the erosion of time so that memories will not be blown away by the wind. Write to register history and name each thing. Write what should not be forgotten. But then why write novels? Well, probably because I come from a Latin America, 
a land of crazy illuminated people, of catastrophes, a land so large and profound, so beautiful and frightening that only novels can describe its fascinating complexity. A novel is like a window open to an infinite landscape. In a novel we can give illusory order to chaos, find the key to the labyrinth of history, explore the past to be able to understand the present and imagine the future. We can use everything, testimony, chronicle, essay, legends, poetry, and other devices that might contribute to decode the mysteries and search for our identity. For a writer who nourishes him or herself with images and passions, to be born in my fabulous continent is a privilege. European and North American critics often stare in disbelief at some of our books, asking how the authors dare to invent those incredible lies about young women who fly to heaven wrapped in linen sheets, of black emperors who build fortresses with cement and the blood of emasculated bulls, of outlaws who die of hunger in the Amazon with a bag full of emeralds on their backs, of ancient tyrants who order their mothers to be flogged naked in front of the troops, and of modern tyrants who order children to be tortured in front of their parents, of hurricanes and earthquakes that turn the world upside down, of revolutions made with machetes, bullets, poems, and kisses, of hallucinating landscapes where reason is lost, it is difficult to explain to those scholars that these things are not products of our pathological imagination. They are written in our history. We can find them in newspapers every day. We hear them in the streets. We suffer them frequently in our own lives. I come from a land of great contrasts where people survive in great violence. Two excellent ingredients for literature Although for the citizens of that reality, life is often suspended from a very fragile thread. Hyperbole, extrasensory perception, the overwhelming presence of nature, legends, myths, traditions, the force of destiny, extreme passions and obsessions are some of the ingredients of Latin American novels. But they are not only literary devices, they are part of our lives. For 25 years, the writers of the ill-named boom of Latin American literature have been narrating our continent, our reality, our, and our collective dreams to the world. In doing so, they have often defied the totalitarian regimes of their countries, and most of them have been forced to live in exile. We also have our little ayatollahs in Latin America. Very few North American writers realize that in most part of the world, authors have to face repression. All over Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Eastern Europe, writing is a very dangerous job. I loved my grandfather. He was a handsome old man. He looked like a painting by El Greco with sharp Spanish features, a mane of white hair, and a heavy silver cane. He was the model for Esteban Trueba, the patriarch in my first novel. He never, we never agreed on anything, but we really loved each other. My first novel began as a letter for him. In 1981, he was dying, 
And at that time, I was living in exile and could no, not go back to Chile to bid him farewell. I wanted to tell him that he could go in peace because people only die when they are forgotten. But I would keep him alive in my heart and in the hearts of my children and my future grandchildren. To prove that I remembered everything, I began with the first anecdote that he told me when I was a child, the story of his first fiancée, Aunt Rose, who was poisoned by mistake. He died, I told you it was a weird family. <laughs> he died before I finished the letter, but I went on writing for a year, writing at night because I had a very demanding job during the day. Finally, it became a spiritual letter because he died and I knew that he would never receive it. Later, the story drifted in other directions, other characters stepped in and I could not stop them. My grandfather was a pragmatic Basque, fascinated with science and technology and with the English language. He thought that those were the foundations of progress. He accepted only that which seemed logical or could be demonstrated, and he dismissed as irrelevant and improbable emotions, instinct, or intuition. He was the typical representative of our Western culture, who has strategically ignored that which escapes the boundaries of reason. He was extremely skeptical about my grandmother's experiments, until she suggested that maybe it was not the souls of the dead that moved the table, but extraterrestrials. <laughs> now that was scientific. And her husband became much more tolerant with the autonomous jerks of the furniture. My grandfather wanted the world to be like a Swiss clock, stable and secure. This has been an obsession to man for centuries and had its climax in the 17th century when Newton created a consistent vision of the world as an invariable and simple machine. My grandfather was not up to date because the dream of the magnificent clock had been destroyed several years before his birth. The discoveries in the fields of astronomy and physics forced man at the end of the 19th century to look for a new metaphor which could explain a universe in constant movement and expansion, a metaphor that could describe an elusive reality. This idea horrified the old man. My grandmother, on the contrary, had an ironic disrespect for materialistic progress. She thought that science and technologies were, technology were very useful to improve the standards of life, but inappropriate to achieve wisdom. In this respect, she trusted inspiration more than reason. My clairvoyant grandmother is Clara del Valle in the House of the Spirits. I don't have to add anything or subtract anything. She is the person. <laughs> she died 37 years ago, but she is still here with me. And maybe some of you can see her. She's standing right here with a white dress and her false teeth hanging from a chain at her neck. She was a charming lady. She assumed that there are many roads to knowledge. She even believed that Spanish is also a decent language, although she wanted all humanity to speak Esperanto. In her middle age, I don't know what's so funny about Esperanto. In her middle age, she became a protector of artists 
because she was convinced that a brush, a pen, or a musical instrument could be as valuable to humankind as a microscope. She was determined to use her senses, her imagination, her experience, and the quiet voices that spoke inside her to expand her perception of reality. She said often that life is a dream of the soul or a thought in God's mind. She died long ago, but we are still in close contact, so I have also been able to discuss my doubts about this with her. She believes that the mind is fragile and the space of a single life is very, very brief, passing so quickly that we never have a chance to see the relationship between events or gauge the consequences of our acts. Therefore, it is important to write in order to keep alive the memories and acquire some wisdom. The myth of the universe as a magnificent machine has been destroyed. Now we know how little we know, and therefore we know much more than before. This opens the imagination to fabulous possibilities, but it also causes deep uncertainty. My generation, with few exceptional moments of illusion and hallucination in the 60s, has stumbled through life with the feeling that every day we lose something vital, we destroy something irrecoverable, and we take another step toward a nuclear cataclysm. The message seems to be, why worry about the future if maybe tonight someone will absentmindedly push the button and we will never wake from our dreams? Let's have immediate gratification, no matter what the consequences are, because there is no tomorrow. Our kids are offered a cynical view of a society where they will, they will have no common project, only individual goals, where to compete is better than to share. Free enterprise is more important than free men, and money is a deity. Where being called a liberal, a humanist, or a virgin are insults where commitment and generosity are considered naive, where kindness is sentimental and sentiments are phony, and where love is out of fashion. Have you noticed that nobody falls madly in love anymore? They get into a relationship and they get out of a relationship. What is that? In spite of all modern resources, most people are not happier, which is very good because that helps us, or forces us, to revise our premises. We find ourselves at the turn of another millennium, and as it happened before when humanity reached the year 1000 of this era, we believe for quite different reasons, but with the same fanaticism, that the end of the world is near, and we shall never see the year 2000. We imagine that the four horsemen of the apocalypse will soon be stampeding of our, over our caskets. If there is no hope, we can cover our heads with ashes and mourn at the inevitable, or we can spend the last moments in meaningless pleasure and consumerism. Well, I'm proud to say that I do not belong to the club of desperate intellectuals. I don't think that the end of the world is near. I'm convinced that just as we can destroy the world, we can save it and improve it. I don't feel paralyzed by the knowledge of my own insignificance. Each one of us and all of us together are responsible for the status quo, and therefore we are responsible for the future. We have created this society, we have made the world as it is. We 
and only we can make it different. Never has humanity had so many resources, so many effective ways of communication, so much information. We are not going back, we are progressing. Half the world has been able to agree on many basic issues, slavery, child labor, colonization, women's liberation. We have also agreed on human rights. Yes, they are constantly violated, but that is done in the shadows because no country is willing to admit that its people are starving or are being tortured. In the same way, I am sure that we can agree, for example, on abolishing militarism. Someday, in the near future, we have to establish peace because the alternative is total destruction. Once we achieve that, we will look at the past with astonishment, just as we look today upon slavery, asking ourselves, how was it possible that for centuries, humankind built weapons, fought wars, and nourished the arrogance of a caste whose only mission was destruction and death? And maybe we can also agree on eliminating borders, nationalities, and classes. Why not? More people feel now that the boundaries of race creed, nationality, or class are illusions. We all belong to the same extended family. We have the same origin. We are all sons and daughters of an ebony Eve born in the heart of Africa thousands of years ago. There is nothing to be afraid of. We can share and help each other. There are many more similarities that bring us together than differences that separate us. Of course, we still have a long way to go in this respect. The fact that more people are aware of this does not mean that most have this awareness. Many things have changed lately. Human beings are changing too, in spite of the fact that we have developed less than 10% of our intellectual capacity. We live longer, we are stronger and taller. I don't include myself among the tall ones, of course. In industrialized nations, the babies of the new generation are born with the ability to manipulate computers and to imagine the infinite. We have the resources to eliminate hunger, poverty, and sickness for all humankind. We have probably acquired more knowledge about ourselves, the planet, and the universe in the last 80 years than in all the previous centuries. We are conscious of our powers of destruction yet we seem to ignore our capacity to improve our own existence. All dreams about the future can be fulfilled, not only the Holocaust that would reduce us all to sidereal cinders, but also the possibility of paradise on earth, as some poets have proposed. We have come a long way since the first tape stood on its feet and observed the stars above with amazement. We have a fabulous journey ahead of us. In my late teens, I discovered science fiction and became an addict. I dreamed that the marshals will land in my garden and take me for a tour of the Milky Way. I must be the only woman in the world who has sexual fantasies with E.T. <laughs> it, it would be wonderful to come back in a few thousand years, which is nothing in, in terms of cosmic time, when our minds will be able to travel in the galaxies to meet the angels, while our bodies, transformed in perfect compact bundles, which will never suffer hunger, pain, fatigue, or deterioration, will have no other task 
than to explore the multiple possibilities of the senses and guard the breath of human life on earth. There is no reason for despair. Why is it then that instead of being full of energy and hope, so many of us have this feeling of futility? Something is wrong. It seems that when, when we headed blindly in the direction of materialistic progress, we neglected something important, and the result is that our spirit suffers. When I write, all these doubts and these anxieties are in my heart, and they appear in my writing, disguised in different forms. As Tom Farber says, the mission is to give some truth. But how? How can we recognize the truth? How can we understand the meaning of life? I don't understand a telephone. How could I understand the astonishing complexity and the beauty of the creation, with its millions of galaxies and billions and trillions of stars and its innumerable dimensions and unthinkable forms of life? Have you ever had a human brain in your hand? Suppose not. It looks like a pound of compact calamari. It is very pretentious to imagine that those calamaries would be able to decipher the universe and everything that it contains. But it is good to know that humankind has always delved into the mysteries and that all along history some men and women have asked the fundamental questions and that in our genetic memory the impulse of curiosity is registered. Joseph Campbell suggested that instead of asking what is the meaning of life, we should wonder about the experience of being alive. Maybe there is no real meaning to life. It simply happens. And our mission on earth is not achieving anything, only being. Be like the flowers or the wind. Nothing that we do is really significant. Our compulsion for tasks or goals, for power or success, for wealth or pleasure, is just a way of escaping from our only responsibility, which is just to exist as harmonious beings. This idea is very tempting, but being is not enough, because human life is also action. We have to do things all the time, take decisions, choose alternatives. These decisions can be good or bad. I use the term good or bad in a practical sense. Good is what is convenient for most of us and benefits the planet, and bad is what produces damage. To act, we need a set of values. I realized this for the first time during the military coup in September 11, 1973 in Chile. That day, my country changed. The set of values which we had been using seemed totally distorted. Even language lost its meaning, and words were like democracy, equality, freedom, or companion, compañero, were prohibited. We were surrounded by violence. A time of intolerance and darkness began. For the first time I saw that there was evil in the world, and we had to deal with it. But at the same time I learned that the world is full of goodness and of love. While some people were torturing, killing and denouncing, thousands were risking their lives to help others, to fill the hungry, to bury the dead, to hide the persecuted, to search for the disappeared ones. There's, there is more goodness than there is evil, 
But goodness is silent and discreet, while evil is noisy. That is why we hear so much more about the bad that is done, and we seldom realize how much more good there is. Sometimes, evil seems to take over and human beings act crazy, destroying and killing until ultimately their deeds turn against them and they sink in the swamp of their own mistakes. But most of the time, most of us behave decently if our set of values guides us in that direction. So, if life is not only being but it's also action, we need some basic rules to help us. The world is changing fast. We need to revise our concepts of society and to create some principles on which we should all agree, just as we have agreed on other issues before. This is a fascinating challenge. The time has come for prophets, for artists, for intellectuals, for visionary politicians and ideologists, for scientists, and for all the people with the gift of imagination and intuition. Their mission is to dream the future. I would like to be part of that team. I don't know the meaning of my life apart from love, which seems to be the ultimate reason of my existence. But I'm beginning to discover the purpose of writing. If it is true that the written word has some powers, some power, writers can contribute to change the rules. As I said at the beginning, I'm not modest. I have the ambition to improve the world and to use my writing for the achievement of that goal. Maybe I can contribute to create a more gentle way of living. You, me, every one of us and all of us together can make a real revolution of the spirit. We should all join efforts in the beautiful task of inventing a more benevolent way of living, a more benevolent world where love for each other and love for this planet and its creatures will prevail. Gabriel Garcia Marquez once said that he writes so that his friends will love him more. I write so that people will love each other more. Thank you. Thank you. Now that the boring part is over, maybe we can have a dialogue. And if you want to, to ask questions, I will do my best to answer them. Yes? Uh, she's asking about uh, Eva Luna and how much of that is autobiographical. <laughs> um, actually, in, in the House of the Spirits, Alba, the, the narrator, has part of my biography because she was also brought up in the house of her grandparents and she had um, her childhood, childhood and her, her youth are similar to mine, although I'm not the character. And in my second novel, Irene Beltran has part of my biography too because I also worked as a journalist in a women's magazine and I also experienced many of the things that she does in the book. But Eva Luna has nothing of my biography, although she has all my emotions. I wanted to write about being a woman and about being a writer. It took me 40 years to accept, accept the fact that I am a woman. First, I tried to be a man. And then when, when things started to appear all over the place, 
And I realized that I would never be like my brothers. I tried to be the stereotype. I wanted to be tall and blonde. I would have loved to be a bimbo. <laughs> and it didn't work that way either because I didn't have the raw material. So it took me 40 years to accept the fact that I was this person and I was not going to change much. I could diet, that was the only thing I could do. So I began to love myself for the first time, not much because I was raised as a Catholic. So I, I <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're supposed to love humankind and God, not yourself. And so, um, when I realized that, I started to enjoy the feeling of being a woman, the wonderful things of being a woman and being among women. And that's what I wanted to write about. And so I put in Eva Luna's lips all the things that I wanted to say about my own experience as a woman. And then, I had been telling stories all my life since I was a kid. When I was a child, my mother says that I would tell these terrible, long tales to my horrifying, scary tales to my brothers. The poor kids would be terrified during the day and they had terrible nightmares at night. Later, my children had to endure the same ordeal. <laughs> and I never realized that I, that I had been doing that until all, all of a sudden I realized that, that um, it was in an, air, in an airplane actually. I, I was feeling a form. And in that little space where you have to put your, your profession, and when one usually puts mother or housewife or journalist, I put storyteller. And I said, my God, I am a storyteller. And, and it was a wonderful feeling, because in storytelling, you, you can give something to other people, and at the same time, you can put light and colors to your own life. You can invent your own legend, and that's what I've been doing, actually trying to live my own legend so that someday I will be able to write good memories. All invented. <laughs> yes. Could you address the, the feeling you have about being an exile who is committed and loves her country and culture but who wants to live outside it? Did you hear? Yes. No or yes? Yes. yes. No. She talks about writers in exile and how I feel about the fact that I have been for so long. Well, now I'm not in exile anymore because um, in Chile, the list of the people that could not return to the country was eliminated. And so everybody's going back and I went back in December. And so I, I know now that there is a place where I belong and there is a place that belongs to me. And this is a great feeling, a great feeling because for many years I, I had this burden of, of being always a foreigner. It's very, very difficult to explain this because probably most of you have never experienced that. But when you are forced out of your country, uh, it's never a choice. You, you have to do it. It's a matter of survival. The first thing that you feel is that, that you don't understand the world. You don't know the rules. And although you speak the language, although it's a Latin American country, you understand that, that something is going on there and you never will grab it because there's a whole generation that has experienced another world, another circumstance, another geography, and you're not part of it. And you will never understand the subtle rules that are there. I have this feeling here all the time. When we have a dinner party, for example, and, and, and my husband with their friends are talking about their experience in Berkeley in the 60s, for example, they talk, I understand the language, but I will never understand the rules and the things that they are talking about. 
It's something very subtle. But now I know that I'm not a foreigner anymore. I have a place. Now, the feeling of exile is a great feeling at the same time because it forces you to adapt yourself. You have to survive, and you have to, to discover strength within you that you didn't know you, have, you had it. And most people do have it, but they never have uh, an opportunity to experience it or to try it. And I think I would have never written the books that I have written without that experience. And so it was a great experience for me and for my children too. I, I, I think it's painful, but out of pain and failure, I have learned the few things that I know, never out of success and happiness. Yes. <laughs> he wants to uh, know about Mimi, the character of the transvestite. She's, not a, she's a transsexual in my, second book, in my third book, In Eva Luna. Well, it all began with a very weird experience that I had in Spain. I was invited to those terrible TV programs, those Saturday night programs where you have to be there with the dwarfs of the circus and the, and, and the fat woman of... Uh, oh, it's just terrible. And the writer, the Latin American exotic writer. And we were there in a room before the show, and the show was already going on, it was on the air, and um, I was waiting there with these people, and all of a sudden, the most stunning woman came in. She was all dressed in black velvet and false diamonds, with this mane of silky hair and this incredible plastic skin and, she, and these nails, and she was just... I moved away as far as possible because I don't like to be compared. And... <laughs> I, I watched her from a certain distance to see if I could learn something. She was very tall and, and, and incredibly beautiful. And then she came into the show before me, just before me, and I realized that she had been a torero. She was, she, she was a man. And, and she was called Bibi Anderson, and she's very famous in Spain. Maybe you've heard of her. And I couldn't believe it. And so when she came out, I just touched her to see how much plastic there was. Nothing was plastic, everything was real. And so I, I was fascinated with this idea. At that time, my daughter, she's a psychologist, and she was studying, she was doing a master on, what, how could you translate that? Um, human sexuality, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Well, sex. <laughs> and at that time, we were living in Caracas, in a very male chauvinist society, and I told Paula, look, Paula, you should change uh, the theme of your thesis because, frankly, you won't ever catch a man like this. Nobody wants to be with an expert. Nobody wants to. <laughs> and she said that I was old-fashioned, but at that time she had a boyfriend. He was from Sicily, and, of course, he left her because he didn't want her to be measuring other people's orgasms. I'm sorry I'm in a church, Father, but, but that's how it happened. <laughs> and so... At that time, uh, I was writing about this character, and I needed some research. And I had been dealing with all the stuff that my daughter was bringing home. All sorts of perverts. All sorts of trained dogs. The most incredible things. I must tell you, this has nothing to do with Mimi, but I have to tell you this anecdote. I, <laughs> I was in, in the Netherlands in one of these crazy lecturing tours. And I was in Amsterdam, and I received a phone call from my daughter, and she said, Mother, can you go to a shop? And she gave me the street and the number, and she said, and buy me so and so and so, and she gave me the models. So I just wrote down everything, and I went. Remember my Catholic upbringing. And so I went there, and it was a porno shop. And I just 
handed the list to the person who was there, and she gave me this incredible rubber things. <laughs> and I just hid them the best I could in, the, in, in my suitcase. That was not the worst part. The worst part was passing customs. And, and when the man opened my suitcase, I, said, I had to explain that they were not for my use, but my daughter's. <laughs> it was terrible. Well, all, and then, well, going back to Mimi. And so I told my daughter, I really need to, to know more about this, because I research a lot. I really do serious research. So uh, she said, well, I know several, several people who are transvestites, and they have, exp they have had surgery and all the hormones and all that. And so I got in touch with, with several people. I chose one which was, uh, who, who served as, as a model, and I used him. In a way, I wanted to scorn everything that has to do with male chauvinism. And uh, I wanted to, um, to put in the words of Mimi and in her character everything that is against that machismo that I have experienced all my life. <laughs> These are very long answers, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yes. Which uncle are you talking about? The Rodolfo Valentino one? <laughs> Salvador Allende. No. Uh, she's, uh, she's asking about, um, about Professor Leal in Of Love and Shadows. Professor Leal is a, um, a Spanish Republican that has to leave his country and he goes to exile and lives in Chile. This happened to many people. At that time, after the Civil War in, in Spain, Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet, was a con consul in uh, France. And he had the mission to give passports and visa to several uh, um, Spanish intellectuals and artists that were escaping from, from Spain. And so he um, organized everything so that a ship called the Winnipeg would carry all these people to Chile. It was a long trip for these people who had been a long time in great pain and suffering, and many of them were leaving behind their families, and they would probably never see them again. And in Chile, there was great expectation with this Winnipeg ship that was coming and the many families, my family among them, went to Valparaiso to the, to the port to receive the ship so that these people wouldn't have to go to hotels and they received them in their houses. And that's how we had at home a family, uh, several brothers of a family. Later, some of, one of them was killed by the military uh, coup. And, um, and I got to know this person, and he was very much like Professor Leal, and he served as a model. Now, he was an anarchist. Salvador Allende was not an anarchist, he was a socialist. And he had very clear ideas about politics. This other person was an idealistic anarchist. There were many of those in Spain at that time. That's the model. There's much magic. Valleys of 
Well, I think that there is a lot of magic everywhere in the world. There are more satanic sects in Germany than in Chile. And in this country, everybody's in channeling and in, in, in crystals and, uh, and hot tubs and organic chicken. So, so there's a lot of that everywhere. The, the only difference is that we deal with it and we are not scared of talking about these things and we don't want to explain everything with science and technology. We know that passions and dreams and obsessions move people and, uh, and we dare talk about those things and, and make them part of our lives and our writing. On the other hand, Latin America is a very strange place. It's a, it's a huge, beautiful continent where you can find rivers wide as oceans, mountains, the highest mountains in the world, where angels meet at dawn. You can find jung impenetrable jungles, a land of cataclysms, of where all the races of the planet have mixed in violence and love. And each one comes with their le legends, their traditions, their gods. We had a, an Indian culture very rich in legends and myths and upon, among, upon that culture, another very rich, superstitious culture was imposed. The, the, the conquistadores that came, they also brought their dreams. Imagine, Latin America was for the man of the Renaissance, like, like Mars is for us. It's, it was the, the universe, it was a new world. They didn't discover America, they invented it. And they brought all their dreams with them. And these dreams have been living with us for 500 years, and they are part of our collective dream now. But I don't think that it is especially magic. Magic is everywhere. She's asking about Chile. She was in Chile recently, and she says that my first novel is found in every bookstore, but not the second one. And that um, she wants to know if it was banned, and um, if young people remember Allende and the past. Well, I, um, books are not prohibited in Chile. In 1983, the dictatorship eliminated censorship for books and for theater plays. So um, theoretically, every, any book can be sold in Chile. They're not published there, but you can buy the Argentinian editions. I don't think that the book has been banned. Maybe it's just that people don't like it. It could be. <laughs> and. Um, uh, so I don't know, but I was in touch with young people in the universities and in, in poor neighborhoods everywhere. And it was a very, very moving experience because I was with young people that were so young when the military coup happened that they can have no memory of, of democracy. And the questions were not literary questions. They would ask how it is to vote, what is a Congress, they would ask the basic questions, because they are inventing democracy as if they had it in some genetic memory. It's very touching, and they are the first ones who are in the first rows in the protests. They have been very active. Now, I think that the name of Allende is remembered. I had this very touching ex experience when I went to Chile after 14 years, and I, I passed um, customs, and I found this huge multitude of people giving me a very warm welcome. Most of them were very poor people from the slums. They could have never afforded a book. 
they would have never read any of my books. I'm sure they were there because of the name. They were paying a homage to Allende, not to me. Yes. If I was aware of a network of, women Ameri of Latin American women writers, unfortunately, I have not belonged to any, any organization of writers, women or men. And in Venezuela, I got in, we got together with some women. We had lunch sometime to discuss the problems that women confront in writing, not only to be published and reviewed and the books distributed. Usually they are ignored, and it's harder for women than for men to publish anything or to be a writer. But we would also discuss the problems of the craft itself. For example, how can you write a sex scene if your mother is going to read it? or your husband will think that you've been practicing with somebody else. So that, we, we used to talk a lot about that, but not in a very organized way, no. I must say that I'm very anarchic too. I never belong to any organization. Oh, absolutely, I have the ambition of democracy. I want Chile to be a democratic country as most of the opposition now, I mean, most of the country does now. After the plebiscite last fall, as you know, uh, the government was defeated, and now the opposition have this feeling of joy and freedom as if they had already overthrown the dictatorship, which is not the case. The military structure is intact and Pinochet is still there. So now we have the very difficult task of having, choosing one person, one candidate, and one program to defeat the government again in the elections this year. And I, I want that to happen. Now, personal ambitions, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That was Isabella Allende at Seattle Arts and Lectures inaugural season in March 1989. Stay tuned for part two of this double feature when Isabel returns to the Sal stage in November 2017 for an update on her storied career. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle arts and lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.